Hello and welcome back. This is the In Squash Podcast. Great to be back. And uh, this is episode 285. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson. If you're a listener uh, to the podcast in the past, you may have noticed that uh, it was late October uh, when, when our last episode, 285, took place. That was with the great Declan James. A really good episode, in fact. So if you haven't listened to that one, uh, head back uh, to October and give it a listen. But today, uh, I get into why that was, why I took, uh, why I took that bit of a break, and uh, also uh, what we're going to be doing with a slightly different approach that we're taking. I say we, uh, I oftentimes say we when it was only me, but uh, uh, we uh, now does apply to Ahad Raza. You might know him uh, from his YouTube channel, from what he does on squash skills. He'll be joining me uh, at least once a month uh, to come on, and so he's going to be a big part of what's going on here going forward. And uh, at the end of the day, I think it's all about getting squash content out there and uh, really excited to bring you something uh, a bit different every time uh, we, we uh, produce a good podcast. So I'm really looking forward to that. Another big run. It was five years pretty much where I didn't uh, really take a break at all. Uh, it was maybe four pods a month, sometimes more sometimes a couple of weeks, uh, but I uh, get into why I uh, took the break and now the slightly uh, different approach that we're going to be taking. And uh, that's all coming up as well as the, the season to date with Ahad, which, uh, you know, he's got some tremendous insight, especially uh, on the technical side, which is, uh, you know, I, I do know my squash, but he knows uh, the game really, really well from a technical perspective. But you, you might uh, uh, know that uh, just judging from what he does on his uh, YouTube channel. So, Really looking forward to uh, working with him, and episode 285 is a great jumping off point. But before we get going, though, uh, as usual, a huge shout out to our sponsor, Open Squash. Yes, we're back, uh, and uh, Open Squash is going to be a big part of uh, In Squash podcast going forward. Of course, their mission has always been to continue to make squash accessible to all. Open Squash continues to support many top pros with a similar vision, including Nathan Lake, Gina Kennedy, Victor Quang, and world number one who's been dominating this season, Ali Farag, and he now serves as Open Squash's senior advisor, through which he provides insight on the game, uh, obviously like none other. Now, summer's coming up, and that always brings something uh, special and exciting uh, when it comes to open squash, especially in terms of their prolific uh, summer camps. And this summer's no exception. Beginning from June 8th, Victor, Gina, along with uh, legendary Harvard head coach Mike Way, podcast favorite and Drexel head coach, former world number one John White, and many other uh, coaching greats will be involved in their summer camps. So take advantage now of their early bird discounts that are available until March 1st. Check it all out at opensquash.org. Now, 285, couldn't wait to get this one out there, and now is the right time for it uh, with myself and Ahad Raza. Enjoy. Well, uh, welcome back to the uh, In Squash uh, podcast, and uh, yeah, Jerry Gibson here with you, and it's great to be back too. I think it's been at least two months since we've... Uh, We've done one of these podcasts. I took a little bit of a reprieve just to kind of get my head around things and start, uh, you know, maybe uh, doing something a little bit different, not too different, but a, a little bit different with the pod and then uh, come back fresh. And uh, that's exactly what uh, what's going on here today. Joining me today and hopefully uh, at least once a month, if not more, 
Ahad Raza, uh, and you might uh, know Ahad from his YouTube uh, uh, channel. I think he's got uh, a bit of a YouTube channel, YouTube following in terms of his, uh, you know, the technical uh, uh, stuff that he he looks into the pro side of the game and breaks it down. And um, Ahad, uh, great to see you uh, joining me here today. And thanks for, uh, you know, uh, agreeing to, to join the podcast, hopefully uh, on a regular basis every month. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Jerry. And uh, forgive my voice. I have a bit of a sinus infection going on, so it's a little bit muted, but uh, we'll do our best to get through it. Awesome. Yeah. So what what have you been, uh, I mean, obviously with, with my with the podcast for me, uh, I just needed, uh, needed a little bit of a break. It was like five years. Uh, I don't think I took much of a break at all. Uh, I did one like one a month, at least probably more than that. Uh, and I just, uh, I felt I needed a bit to step away for, for a little bit anyways. And, uh, but now I feel great coming back, especially, uh, with a, a bit of a new look. I like the rackets you got there in the backdrop, but no one can see that, but you've got, is that an old, uh, is that a Gray's racket? Like one of those old. Yeah. Classic- one of them is, uh, this is one of them is my dad's old racket. It says stone stroke on it. Stone stroke. I don't know. Okay. exactly what brand it is but okay. he used to play with it. i still get out and play with it sometimes myself and uh, <laughs> yeah. the other one i found at the club which no one was giving it love so i thought i'd take it upon myself to to nourish it a little bit <laughs> all right well we gotta yeah those they, they look like two old classics so that they, they you know, could have uh, picked those off the shelf i think if you were looking for a racket back in the day uh that's right <laughs> but uh yeah you know just uh for anyone who might not uh be familiar with what you've done in in the past i mean i know you you used to play a little bit on the psa tour and also you uh, uh as i mentioned have your youtube channel and you do uh some some coaching i think as well i'm not sure if you're a club pro at a club or anything but uh yeah give us a bit of a you know backstory and uh, what you've got what else you have going on in terms of your squash yeah no for sure so my backstory is i got into squash relatively late as a teenager taught myself how to play by watching old videos of Jahangir Khan and Jan Sheikh Khan. I'm originally from Pakistan. So I would uh, sit in front of my computer frame by frame, racket in one hand, watching their swing, teaching myself. And then I'd go on court, do solo, just do a lot of fitness, but I never really had an, uh, an appropriate way of doing it. I was sort of putting in volume, but it wasn't really smart volume kept getting injured at the same time trying to do much to catch up to other people eventually excuse me learned how to train a little bit more effectively and i I worked a corporate job worked a regular job and when i turned 30 i was playing at a top 10 level nationally and i had never played psa other than the odd kind of local uh, qualifying event that sort of thing so i had this feeling deep down inside and i said if i don't do this i'm going to regret it for the rest of my life and I never had intentions of trying to become world number one or anything. You know, I, it's, it was way too late for that. But I wanted to go out and just see how good I could get. And that's the same mentality that I've kind of held ever since. So my whole mindset is, is this focus on mastery. So how good of a coach can I get by learning as much as I can about the game? How good of a player can I become by learning all these nuances and then putting them into my own game? And that's the same approach I take with all of my students in historically, so I studied economics, so I have a bit of a rational side to me, and then I have this learning side to me, and then I have this slightly creative side to me. So I try to bring all of those pieces together when I coach uh, players. So I'm uh, to your question, 
I'm not well, a I think that, I think that bodes well for the podcast because I, I, I'm missing some of those things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we'll do our best to fill in the gaps, Jerry. Um, yeah, so I'm not, a, I'm not a club pro as like a full-time pro, but I do coach at a couple of locations. But I do a lot of stuff with uh, international students, with some local students, a lot of in-depth video analysis, uh, mental coaching, creating training plans for players. I do some work with some teams, uh, some, a private school kind of in this Toronto area. Uh, recently, I've been doing a bit with the University of Waterloo team. So there's just um, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of stuff going on. I'm actually in the midst of creating some digital courses to teach people how to learn more effectively when it comes to squash. So, you know, we have a lot of content out there, like Squash Skills is a fantastic platform who I've also been collaborating with over the last several months. And there's a there's a ton of really good information around specific skills and how to learn how to hit a volley drop or how to, you know, think about some basic tactics. But what I find isn't quite there is almost like a framework or a system around how to get better, how to structure a training program, how to come over some of those mental blocks maybe that are holding you back. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, in terms of some of the pro players and their games. So there's, in my mind, there's a little bit of a layer that's possibly missing, or at least it's definitely going to help people learn a bit more efficiently and effectively. And that's, that's another thing on the plate. Awesome. Yeah. I was going to ask you about squash skills because I do recall seeing you, uh, there's some advertising with you and the squash skills and, and I wasn't uh, sure exactly what was going on there, but uh, that, yeah, that's pretty good stuff and must be exciting to, uh, to be working, uh, collaborating a bit with them because they're good people. I know Jethro and, and Gary are really cool guys and they come on the podcast a lot. So Perhaps that's a episode we can look into a couple episodes uh, going forward that could really uh, amount to uh, something interesting. Yeah, absolutely. It's been it's been fantastic uh, working with the team there and just putting out just quality content for people to learn from and hopefully enjoy. Brilliant. Well, um, let's get down to brass tacks as uh, Sal. What's his name? The, the guy from the net uh, Netflix series. Uh, better call Sal. He used to always say, uh, yeah. "Let's get down to brass tacks." <laughs> Okay. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, so season till now. Okay. Um, now before the season started, uh, I, I can honestly say I thought Ali Frag was going to emerge as the guy to beat and he has done that, but I did not uh, think he would dominate the way he's been dominating. Um, and then on the women's side, um, you know, I didn't quite have the confidence to say that Nora El Sherbini would be dominating the way she is just because of her sort of the physical side. She tends to get injured a bit and, but uh, you know, she's proven to be tough as nails. And uh, obviously there, there's this argument out there uh, right now that she could be, uh, you know, the greatest of all time, given the longevity. I mean, how long she's been there at the top of the game for close to 15 years. Right. So uh, right. it's almost 15 years. So uh, just in terms of that uh, overview, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on, on at the top of the game where we see Ali and uh, Nor um, dominating the way they are? Yeah, you know, I think the way I think about squash, I think of it in four quadrants. So I think of the technical side, the tactical side, the physical side, and the mental side. And at a certain level, most of the players at, at that top level, all of the players are fairly equal in most of those areas. And each player typically has maybe one super strength. 
And then it comes down to a matter of, uh, from my perspective, who's feeling better on the day, who's a little bit sharper, who's a little bit hungrier, who's, um, and then all of that kind of ties into accuracy, how likely we are to make errors, et cetera. So, you know, when I think of Ali, he's just got this phenomenal ability to read the game. Mm -hmm. And he just has this way from, from my perspective of <clears throat> applying so much pressure on his opponents. And sometimes it's not even the most accurate hitting at times, but he's just on the ball so early putting just so much work on the players. And I, I'll give you a very, it, it's a, it's an interesting story. So just last week before the sinus infection settled in, I uh, took my laptop on court and I actually put up a game between uh, Ali and Diego from the Tournament of Champions. And I said, you know what? I'm going to try to ghost as though I'm Diego playing against Ali. Okay. And <clears throat> the first game lasted 20 minutes. And I think I got to about game two and a half and i was like this is ridiculous <laughs> so the amount and i mean i'm obviously not at the same level as these guys but diego you know what happens with ali sometimes is he might even lose game one right it's not uncommon for him to lose the first game and then he comes back and but he's just put so much work into his opponents that it's really hard for his opponents to come back by game four and then sometimes even if you get to the fifth it's usually a little bit more one-sided for ali by the fifth and just it's just that he's like i said his anticipation he reads the ball so early he gets on the ball extremely early i feel sometimes he even sacrifices a little bit of accuracy for just uh, taking time away from his opponent because they never get a moment to settle. And then that just builds into the legs. And then when the legs start going, then the decision-making starts going, you're not stable, your accuracy starts going. And then there's a little bit of this snowball effect for the other person. And unless you can really reset and find your way back into it, it's really difficult. So, you know, like we were talking about Diego and in the past, Diego's fitness was possibly questionable, which he's raised significantly now. I mean, questionable for the highest standard, obviously, right? right. Um, now, it's he's not getting blown off the court, for instance, by Ali. And when you see Paul, I know when Paul and Ali play, Paul is the one guy, like you said, who, who did beat Ali uh, not that long ago. But, yeah, in Hong Kong, that's right. But Paul has that physicality. So you have, it's kind of like, I kind of think of uh, like Jahangir Khan, for example. Um, there was an interesting thing, actually, just on Squash Stories on Facebook this morning. Someone posted an article about Ross Norman from 1986, and he, they interviewed Ross relative to Jahangir Khan. And he was saying that, uh, did you see this, by the way? Yeah, yeah, I know I know a little bit about, there's going to be more coming out on this uh, soon. Like, uh, I think something, something's happening with one of the publications, and they're going to be doing something. I don't want to break make uh, speak out of turn here but yeah sure 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 okay okay <laughs> yeah. so i mean i found it fascinating because they interviewed ross norman and he basically said you need to be ready to go on court for two and a half hours if you want to beat Jahangir Khan. And he gave the example, I can't remember the player's name, but he said someone tried to play kind of more shot making and stuff like that and break him down, but it was ineffective. And it's this idea of be, you have to kind of take the game to him and be comfortable doing it for that long. And I feel like with Ali, it's almost a little bit of that where you have to, you're not going to blow him off the court with shot making because his movement and his anticipation is so strong and his fitness is crazy. So you kind of have to stay with him 
and still be, you know, putting some damage in here and there. You have to throw your jabs in the middle. You have to go for the occasional hooker, the uppercut or whatever it is, yeah, yeah. but you have to last the, the length of the match with him. And I think that's the one thing where the other guys at the moment aren't quite able to last that entire time, given how early he's getting on the ball and how much work he's putting into them. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it seems to me like just to to, to uh, sort of add to that, um, like I think each of the guys that that are right there in contention, Cole, Asal, and uh, and the Puma, uh, Diego, uh, each of them, not so much Diego, but uh, I think Cole and uh, Asal, they're missing they're missing something that they need to beat Ali. I think Cole just need Cole needs some more variety in his game. He he needs a, a little bit more you know, uh, unpredictability in his game because it's very highly predictable. Uh, but what he does is very, he's very good at it. And then uh, Asol, obviously, it, it could be uh, just the, the physicality part. He just, I don't think he has the the legs, the lungs, the the fitness. I mean, he never really looks, I mean, he does get tired and he does waste time on court and he, uh, chasing, you know, walking around looking for a ball. But uh, right. Obviously, uh, you know that's part of it. I think. I think if he were to add that element to his game, then then it might be a different story. But those two guys are missing something. And then I think Diego. It's just, I don't know. Uh, it's more of a, a, a mental thing. Yeah, it's interesting because you know with Asal, for example, he's so powerful. He's so strong, and when he's playing someone who doesn't stretch him out repeatedly, he's just a dominant force. And then when he gets on with Ali, he can stick with it. But then he's he's making a few harder movements a little bit sooner, getting stretched out into the back corners a little bit more. He's obviously so strong into the front and he loves using his speed and explosiveness to attack and counterattack from the front. But just those hard, repetitive movements in the back, I think, sap your energy. And then they, it gets into your head a little bit as well, because you're just thinking, well, how long do I have to keep making these movements? And these rallies just start ending. And sometimes I feel that Ali, especially early on in matches, he deliberately, even when he's in attacking positions at times, he deliberately holds and sends the guy back again, just to really put, just torment his opponents almost, because uh, he's, he's playing the long game. And I know when it comes to Cole, your your points around his uh, developing more variation and, and options in his game, he's come a long way in that regard. And I think that match in Hong Kong where he did play and he and he beat Ali, he had a lot more variation than he's ever used. And I felt like that was the best I've ever seen him play because he was taking the ball. I mean, over the years, you can almost see the thoughtful progression, right? Yeah. You can see that he added in a straight drop off the bounce uh, on both sides. Then you can see that he added in a volley drop for a straight volley drop then you saw that he added in a show straight hit cross volley drop and i think in hong kong what i saw was he was starting to hold the ball a lot more as well yeah. so especially on the forehand so i think he is adding the layers in and it's you know if his development continues the way it is i think he's also going to be sort of like an ali with that force to be reckoned with because he has that physicality that a lot of the other guys don't have to that level and now he's yeah. adding the layers and new the nuances to his game yeah if he so, can do that definitely he's the guy because uh but i think perhaps what happens is he, he might go into default mode default mode for him is just sort of you know okay i'm just going to get this one back i'm going to get this one back and he plays that so well and then when he's set up for a drop shot it's predictable but he plays it's a, it's always so tight and he hits a lot of winners with 
you know, where he, when he sets up for shots and, and, and you know he's going to hit it, but he puts it away. Absolutely. And I think, and I think that's why Hong Kong was really interesting because he sort of sucked Ali into his, in, into his style, into Cole's style of play. He sucked Ali into his style of play. And what he did do was what you're suggesting where he showed the drop and then he changed it up. But I feel like it's still, uh, those are skills that maybe haven't fully become ingrained as part of his kind of default play. So to your point, you know, whenever we're in this pressure situation, we always default to our sort of most practiced or uh, most comfortable brain program. Yeah, I like, I, think- I like to go for the reverse, the, the back at the reverse angle. The, what do they call it on PSA Squash TV? The, the leisure center. The leisure center. I, like, I, I go default on the leisure center when I get back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. We we gotta we gotta raise the programming there, Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you know that's that's what it really is when it comes down to learning. It's how how much can you really learn, and what is the highest default program that you can create for yourself, so that when you are in that pressure situation, you're under the cuff. What comes out? How do you get and there, think- though? Because de- default to me, default to me means practice, practice, practice. But beyond practice. Because practice playing match play is so much yeah. that's when default mode appears, right? You don't default yeah. in a, in practice. You default when the pressure's on, right? Precisely. And and that's exactly it. So I think, you know, there are certain ways in which you almost have to structure your training so that you expose yourself to more randomness, more variables, and then you have to get in those pressure situations and then have clarity going into those pressure situations. So, you know, there's this theory of the inverted U-curve of performance. And the idea is that the more, so if you think of a graph on the Y-axis, you have performance on your X-axis, you have arousal or kind of your activation. And most people, they have a peak. So the top of the U, the inverted U is usually around like a five or a six. So that when you're moderately aroused, that's when you're going to perform your best because you need to have the energy and all of that to make those quick explosive movements. But you also need to have enough calmness to be able to think and let that programming come out as well. So if you get over aroused, there's like a steep cliff and you just drop off and you descend into chaos. And if you're under aroused, you might be too lethargic or lackadaisical and you're not really sharp and you're just kind of going through the motions. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, you know, you often have to find that balance, but you also have to create situations to put yourself under pressure and then learn how to manage your arousal levels for optimal performance. Like a, a lot of this comes down to self-awareness. You oftentimes need someone who knows what they're doing at, mm-hmm. to guide you through this process. I, so that say, you like can- that, I mean, as a player, it's, I mean, this, this sounds really, really good. Like it's great stuff, but as a player, it'd be difficult to sort of, monitor this i would say as a coach you'd have to create these situations continuously in order for it to to take you know what i mean absolutely absolutely so you know there there are ways to kind of scale training to train some of these skills so they come out under pressure and then you have to get through those tournament situations and that's why one of the things i do a lot with my students is video review of matches and then we talk about different aspects of the game it's not just shot selection it's not just technique but it's before the match it's after the match it's how regulated were you were you thinking did you know what was happening etc cetera, etc cetera. so there's a uh, yeah there's there's an art and a science to all of this yeah well, i mean uh i was gonna say um 
like if I were a coach, like you hear about, I think it was Nicole David when she went to um, Liz Irving. I think that was, was it Liz Irving who coached Nicole David? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, When she went to Liz, I think, yeah, Liz Irving um, changed her whole game. She forced her to do, I think, change her grip or, or something really strange and made her play that way in every tournament until it, it defaulted. So is it up to a coach to say, if I, you know, if I were Rob Owen, well, of course I'm not, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but if I were Rob Owen, if I, and I wanted Paul to default into a more sort of creative player in certain situations in matches, in matches, particularly in these big matches, uh, would I not want to see him playing differently reg- over a regular basis and, and kind of force him to do that at the risk of him losing a few for a few months? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's your last point there about the risk of him losing over a few months. We have to we have to look at different factors here. So we have to look at the time horizon. We have to look at the player's goals. We also have to look at the player's personality and some of those nuances, because if you're taking someone who's very methodical and very structured, it's going to be impossible to get them to play like a, like a Mazen Hisham or the way Rami Ashore played or something, right? There's just the, the brain, the fluidity, the natural tendencies. There are some things that are going to be innate to a person, but you can definitely progress those skills or add some nuances but i don't know if it's i don't know how possible it is to completely change someone from uh you know the old paul to like a mazen hisham for example and it, and it probably doesn't make sense for paul to do that anyways right well we saw um, it happen with peter nickel when he um when he's you know jonathan power was dominating him i think it was for about a year and a year and a half it was completely destroying him every time they played and then suddenly he came and, and he had a bit of deception added to his game. Exactly. It became part of his game, uh, a big part of his game going forward. I'm not sure how long, uh, you know, I haven't studied Peter's, you know, the history of his progression, but I'm not sure how long that took. But it did take about a year and a half for him to get there. And then he started and then he was dominating in a power. Uh, exactly. exactly. And, and that's exactly right. So I think, you know, if you're, if you're a younger player, you have very, very strong aspirations to do something. You have to think about what your game is missing. And then you want to think about what skills you need to develop to close the gap. And then you have to think about just, you have to accept the fact that you are going to have a bit of a decline and it's not going to be easy (laughs) to train these new skills and start playing differently. And sometimes you're going to have to accept the fact that you're going to lose. But if you want to have the long-term gain, you have to accept that loss in the short run. And that's very hard for a lot of people because it's it's easy to say, well, oh, if I just default to my, you know, my my hard hitting, I'm going to beat this person. But yeah. yeah, sure, you can, but then you're not actually looking at the long-term vision that you have for yourself. Yeah. I, I remember back in, during my junior playing days, there was one coach and I didn't listen, uh, but he told me, I... I was playing in men's A at a young age. And he said, I want you to go back to men's C and we're going to work on your movement, which is always, I wouldn't say it was a liability, but it was something that I could have worked on a bit more when I was younger. And you know, in hindsight, perhaps he was right. Uh, But it's not 50 now. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, I think we, so 
So just in terms of the guys there, so we, uh, the Puma, we've got uh, Sol and we've got, you know, Paul Cole, we kind of looked at them, but uh, you, um, you came onto my radar. And I think even before the, your first uh, video on uh, mm-hmm. staff Sol, uh, but, but that one really, I think captured the attention, caught the attention of a lot of people. Uh, it, right. I, know, I know you got a, a lot of hits there and it was a great, it was a great sort of take on it. I don't think there was anything nasty in it at all. Not the no. way you, uh, you know, some people seem to think it, there might've been something like that. Right. You probably got a bit of social media flack, uh, uh, <laughs> video, but, uh, uh, I thought it was pretty good and honest. And, uh, but now let's look at us all. And, um, Sort of where he is now. Obviously, worked with James Wilstrip, Mohammed Al Kai, uh, definitely over the last, I'd say at least the last year. Anyways, there definite inroads been made, and recently in the last couple of events, especially the the last event. Um, I mean, he had some great match. The match with um, was it Mezen, Hisham. That's right. They, I mean, two got those two. Whenever they seem to play, regardless of who they play. There's usually some sort of banter, a lot of shouting, a lot of games. Right. Uh, there was hardly any of that. Uh, and there was that big incident back a few years back when uh, Sol seemingly grabbed uh, Mezen's uh, wrist or something as he was passing through to hit the That's ball. Right. Uh, so you know, there's definite progress there. There was there were a lot of sort of free-flowing rallies in that uh, match, and I think in matches uh, – uh, in tournaments leading up to this for us all. So uh, just juxtapose if you, if you know, if you can, uh, the video that you put out back then where you know, all the issues and all the, the negative backlash and the suspensions uh, were sort of born from right around that time and those issues right. till now. In, in my opinion, I think Asal in the past, and I haven't spoken to him about this, but I have a feeling that he had this win at all costs mentality. And I think anything that's in the gray zone is acceptable because we're not, it's not clearly in the rules that it's disallowed. So I think the concept that he had in mind was, Hey, I have, I can, I can technically use my body. It's not a, it's not a blatant foul. So let me make it a bit harder for my opponent to get to the ball, because if I can make it harder and I'm not quote unquote, breaking the rules, I'm going to win more points and win more matches and get get to the rank I want. And I think what he was doing was he was using his body strategically in ways to obstruct the other player's line and so on and so forth from the trailing leg to what you mentioned with Mazen holding the arm every now and then. He was holding people in when they were trying to get out of corners and so on and so forth. But I think to your point, He's had this fantastic support system over the last year in terms of James Wilstrop and uh, and his coach Muhammad, and I think even like some work with Lee Drew over at PSA. Mm-hmm. And I think his perspective has changed a lot. And I feel that you know, stepping back for a second, our environment has a significant impact on us. So if we're in an environment where everything is cutthroat, win at all costs, well, then we start doing things that align with that mindset. But if we're in an environment where we're constantly being told, hey, let's play a little bit more fair, let's play a bit more honestly, let's create free-flowing squash, let's let our skills do the talking, all of that sort of stuff. And then, you know, if you flip this perspective a little bit, like what Rami Ashore used to do, he would have his opponent out of position 
And then he'd play the ball into space and he would deliberately make like excessive effort to get out of the way because he wanted the other guy to run and he wanted him to do the work. So if you almost change the perspective and say, hey, instead of blocking the person and trying to win the point by using my body, I'm actually going to give them space and make them run that diagonal so I can make them run another diagonal after that. It's almost just this different perspective and approach to the game where you're just taking the game to your opponent and it's just this free-flowing lovely spirit of squash and i think asal has really taken that very well over the last six to nine months or so i'd say and you see him you know almost shrinking his body he'll bring his arms together and he'll bring his feet together to make himself smaller he'll deliberately step out of the way of his opponent's line now he's trying to avoid making excessive contact with opponents if he does try to, you know, sometimes even when someone hits a wide cross court, he doesn't want to play that straight drive because of the incident. Um, I'm forgetting the French player, Lucas Serm, you know, yeah. like that incident. So he's, what, what I'm seeing is he's clearly learned and he's making a conscious effort to change his default programming, going back to our previous conversation. That. This is where the right? default thing uh, is coming into play. But I, I don't, I was going to just add, just to add to that, has he, as a result, has he lost his a, a bit of an edge? Because he, he had that edge. And, and I think, you know, despite all, you know, the, the stuff that we say about his movement and all that, he was also winning matches yep. with, you know, he was with really, really incredible squash. And uh, it seems like he his game is slightly different right now than, it, than what it was, uh, you know, despite, you know, the movement issues and, and other issues that he had. He's lo- to me, he's lost a bit of an edge. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's it's difficult, right? Because when you are being suspended, when you are, when you almost have a mark on your back, when other players are talking out against you, um, mentally it becomes very challenging. And when you're on the court, you you can't have all these distractions and you can't have all this other chatter in your head. And again, it would be awesome to speak to him about this because this is I'm just sharing from my perspective. Trying, we're trying. We're going to get him on again yeah well let's do it let's do it yeah, yeah we'll get him on again uh, he's been on three times you know he's yeah. really really accessible yes me. well we'll, uh, we'll try to pick his brain with some of this mental stuff and in uh you know ask him how whether it's caused a distraction because it's it's difficult to i can imagine it being difficult to balance aggressive play and be fired up mm. and also at the same time manage some of the potentially some of the etiquette on court if you've been programmed in a, for many, many years to play a certain way. Because sometimes we get so caught up in that aggressive play, the hard movements, you know, all that sort of stuff, then it, that some of the etiquette might fall to the wayside. So I, the way I look at it, it, there's probably a bit of this confusion in his mind there. And then he's probably feeling some of the mental pressure from what people are saying, what he's thinking. He knows the referees are, you know, very, very, uh, they have him under a real sort of microscope or a magnifying glass. He's got to be careful, doesn't he? Because he's probably going to enjoy this sort of honeymoon where, where people are, you know, oh, oh, he's changed. Oh, he, you know, he's good now. He, he's he's right. improved his behavior on court. And then he loses that sort of that drive to sort of that edge that he had that really, you know, he didn't care. He just went out to win. Right. And ultimately, that's what every all the top players, 
that's their goal. They're going to win every time they hit the court. Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, so much of it boils down to mentality, right? So you look at an Ali Farag, like we were talking about, he's he's on court every time to win. And same way Rami Ashur, Muhammad Sharbagi, all these guys. But you see Ali, and I remember Rami would do this, Muhammad does this now as well. They smile after good rallies. And they're looking to, they they applaud their opponent when their opponent does something exceptional. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a different approach to the game. So you can have that mentality of, I'm going to, I'm coming here to like kill this guy. I'm coming here to just win this match. But at the same time, there is this respect and there is this, almost this honor code. And there's, there's a gentlemanly aspect to it, even when you're trying to kill the other guy. Yeah. So I think it's finding that balance and, you know, again, yeah, so much a, this is a podcast episode in and of itself. I mean, when I think, when I look at a guy like Jancher, I can see, I mean, he took no prisoners and he, he was sort of, he had a huge edge to him. Like he didn't, you know, you yeah. could see he didn't always like the guys that he played against. Like he had, yes. he had a bit of an attitude. Uh, yep. Meanwhile, uh, Jahangir, you know, he seemed to get along. He seemed, there was a bit more of a uh, camaraderie, I guess, for lack of a better word, on, on right. court with, with his opponent. Uh, all these top players had a different uh, maybe fuel that got them to uh, always want to win matches, but you could definitely see it in certain players like JP, for example. Yes. He, different uh jancher different jahangir different peter nickel different they all they all had a different look about the way they went about things but yes, ultimately yes. they they were out there to win every single time yeah yeah exactly and i mean so much of it is perspective like some people might come on and and see the other individual as their enemy some people may come out and say that hey I have to beat myself, my that inner critic, that inner voice in order to win. It's there, there's so many, we're never just playing the other person. We're playing many against many things every time we get on court. And I think the best players in the world minimize the number of opponents that they're actually facing at any given point in time. Yeah. Let's uh, just in terms of the women's side, we touched on yeah. it briefly. Uh, Norel Sherbini, um, again, uh, Without doubt, the the top player in the world. She's number one, I think, in terms of ranking points. She's well ahead of uh, yeah. of Go. Is Gohar two now again? I think she is. Uh, when I looked right now, I see uh, Hanya is two, just by a bit behind, uh, in front of Gohar. Okay, okay. So yeah. uh, Hanya is two, but uh, uh, Nora is well. Of, uh, I think she's definitely she well is. ahead of him. Uh, yeah. Now you know she uh, Gohar's had her chances. She's been up in quite a few matches against uh, against uh, Sherbini and uh, mm-hmm. Hamami did beat uh, Sherbini in Qatar. Um, but what is it uh, about Sherbini's game that, uh, you know, uh, has allowed her to stay at the top uh, of the game pretty much, you know, uh, at least for this year anyway. I mean, Gohar was right. top of the game for a couple of years there, but she always had trouble every time she played uh, Sherbini. Yeah, I think with Sherbini, it's interesting because, again, she just has more weapons, more tools at her disposal, I think, than everyone else. And, you know, the the, the commentators on Squash TV do a fantastic job. They always talk about Sherbini's hold. And I think the softness of her touch combined with her ability to hold the ball and have that deception and really generate that racket head speed and get the ball going in different places. And I think she's got... 
she's she's got very explosive movement as well so she covers the court surprisingly well i think it's that combination of all of those things that really sets her apart and and then she uses angles effectively with the hold so you see a lot of the you know when you think of gohar you think of hamami like they're they're fantastic athletes gohar hits the ball probably harder than 99% of the men out there as well and <laughs> el hamami probably moves just as well or better than most of the top male players as well. Yeah. But I think it's Sherbini has that extra edge with her racket skills and in particular with her deception. And I think what happens is, you know, unless you are a very strong mover, it's really hard to change direction and cover those angles that Sherbini creates with her racket. Like she has some shots that I don't think any of the other uh, women, female players on tour are using. Mm. And she's able to move her opponents into corners in a different way with just, you know, a slight hold and a slight angle. That's just an uncomfortable movement. And you see Nuran and, and Hania getting to the balls many times, but they're, you know, they're out of position. They're off balance. The next ball is a little bit looser. So mm. Sherbini just, in my mind, she has a couple of extra tools that some of the other ladies don't have. Yeah, she uh, just seems like against Gohar anyway, she's eventually she's able to to withstand the power of Gohar. And Gohar, um, you know, it's surprising. Like she did her her short game isn't as good as I think it could be. I mean, she leaves when she plays at front court, like a backhand or forehand drop when she has time. She seems to seems to not be as precise as, as it could be. It's a little bit loose and a little bit, a bit high at times. So mm-hmm. that's something that, uh, um, you know, perhaps you, know, you would think that she might be, be working on, maybe she is working on it. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, Gohar, but she's got so much power and she just, she, because she generates so much pace, even her attacking is based on off of pace. Right. Mm-hmm. So she, her kills are her massive asset when it comes to her attacking shots. And, and that's why I think it's sometimes it's not the easiest thing to transition from an insane amount of power with your drives and your cross courts and your attacking shot being kills. And if you play a boast, it's like a hard ripped boast Mm -hmm. to then suddenly soften up your hands. And, you know, when we're talking about Paul, for example, he was all fitness retrieval. Then he added the drop and so on and so forth. I think with Neuron, if, if she wants to, and I mean, this is just my perspective, right? I think if yeah. she wants to continue to grow her game to that, she, I mean, she's already number two, three in the world, yeah. right? You can't get much better. Former than world number one. Woman. She was exactly. number one for two, was it two years, maybe? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah for a long time. Yeah. So, you know, you take it with a great pinch of salt, I guess. But I think if she can develop that softness in her hands, if she can add that little subtle hold to break her opponent's movement. I think that those couple of tools are going to be massive. And if she can just leverage those angles um, yeah. even more effectively, I think with her power, it's just, just phenomenal. Yeah. And the, the three of them, I mean, especially, uh, well, they're just so different. The personalities are so different yeah. between the three of them. Although uh, Go, Gohar and uh, Hamami are, are very ultra competitive. Uh, yes obviously the three of them all are but they just show it differently and yes. uh that's a, that's so good for the for the women's game I, I don't think i've seen you know you can say you know obviously uh sherbini is number one and she she's um 
she's well ahead of the other two at, in terms of points right now. But the three mm-hmm. of them make for a very intriguing uh, women's game. And then you, you've got a few that are coming up. Uh, obvi- yeah. Obviously, uh, Sobe, uh, she was yeah. she had made some big inroads, but still wasn't yes. there. Uh, unfortunately, due to her, her Achilles injury, I think she's, she's yes. out right now. But um, is there anyone else in the women's game that, that sort of caught your eye? Or or is it those, uh, as I see it anyways, those yeah. and sort of everyone else, obviously? Yeah, I think that uh, I recently watched a little bit of Olivia Weaver play as well mm. in uh, yeah. in Detroit. And she looked quite strong. I saw where Rowan Alarabi. She looked quite strong. She took Gohar out in uh, in the yeah, recent right. tournament in Detroit. Yeah. yeah. So you know, I think I think there are definitely some women that are pushing the envelope and kind of pushing these top three. I feel like it comes down to a bit bit of consistency, probably. Mm. So you know, Alarabi, for instance, she took out Gohar, but then she she lost three uh, zero to Weaver, like quite in a straightforward match so you know just that ability to back it up that ability to have that consistently high performance i think that's probably thing where you know you see that's always the thing that separates these you know the top two top three just like long-term dominant players they have the ability to maintain their average level at such a high level and not have massive blips in their performances yeah and they can do it day in and day out and i think some of the other women that are on the tour they probably have just as much skill and they probably have a lot of the tools, but I, I don't know if the the consistency of performance is quite there. And maybe just that exposure to, and, and that clarity of how do I play this game style and how do I beat that game style? And, you know, just having that complete game and then having the mental clarity to be able to adjust your game to each opponent. I think that's a skill in itself. Yeah, Nayla Gillis uh, or Hillis. I'm not never quite sure how to pronounce. They they pronounce <laughs> me all the time. Hillis or Gillis, but I know it's Nayla. Uh, I mean, she yeah. made some big inroads uh, towards the end of yes. last year. But um, just like I'm wondering for her, you know, where where does that go next? Because she she's a lot like uh, like Paul actually. Uh, I mean, she's very physical, very fit, yes. very fast. Plays you know plays a pretty mm-hmm. very good. Uh, fundamental game of squash, uh, mm-hmm. but she relies on her quickness and and that does her really well. She reached yes. a, a point where she's competitive now with you know def, you know within the top ten and maybe uh, beating the girls at the bottom half of that top ten. But where what can someone like her, for example, or someone like a Gina Kennedy, mm-hmm. uh, what do they need to do in order to to take it to the next level? Because they've they've got the physical side, obviously. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when you when you think about um, so a lot of players have the physicality, but they use for the most part the back half of the court, and the front half of the court isn't being leveraged enough. So, you know, when you think about basic tactics, if I'm playing eighty, let's say you and I are playing, and I'm playing eighty percent of my squash into the back half of the court. Well, you're going to start anticipating that. You're going to shift your T position back a little bit subconsciously. You're going to know that, okay, well, Ahad's in the back left, so he's going to hit a straight drive or he's going to hit a cross court. Mm-hmm. If he, I'm going to wait for the straight because he's mostly hitting straight. And then when he hits a cross, if it's a bit loose, I'm going to reach over and I'm going to try to volley that ball. <clears throat> right? Like that, you become you become a little bit more predictable. And I think when you look at like, let's say a Shabini, we were talking about Shabini. She uses the back of the court, but then not only does she go 
deep out of the back. So she'll hit drives and cross courts, but she'll go short out of the back with a quick boast, with a drop out of the back, with a kill out of the back, with a straight or cross court kill out of the back. So she has all these options. And when you have all these options from every position on court, you end up creating a lot more uncertainty for your opponent. So you're far more disruptive. So That's even if you think don't- Sobe does really well. That's what uh, yeah. Sobe has- I one of the best skill sets of, of all the women on tour. Like she, right. she's got great hands. Uh, she volleys well. She 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 plays the short game well. She hits great length. Um, you know, maybe she was a bit slow to the front court. I think she's made mm-hmm. some uh, some inroads there. But you know, Absolutely. in terms of unpredictability, she's another one yes. uh, who's quite good at that. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's what. You know, you mentioned uh, Gina Kennedy um, or or Nelly, for example. I think that as they add a little bit more of that unpredictability, and unpredictability doesn't always have to come from just deception. It comes from also increased shot options. Mm-hmm. So if you have increased shot options from any given position, then you automatically become more unpredictable and you automatically unsettle your opponent more on the tee because they ne- they're never clear on where the ball's going. And I think that's the thing that Shabini does so well is she, her opponents almost, I'm assuming almost always when they're on the tee, they're going to be like, okay, where's this going? Is it long? Is it short? I'm not quite sure. Whereas sometimes when you play other players, you can almost be a bit more relaxed on the tee because you know that they're going to hit a, like a straight drive. Yeah. And I think that's going to be one of the the key developmental areas for some of the players, both men and women that uh, are more sort of basic, quote unquote, basic players. Right. Well, I think what we what we want, what we're going to be seeing, if the you know, if anyone wants to make inroads uh, against Ali or against Norel Shabini, we're going to see people changing. They're going to have to change their games. They're going to have to do something different um, to to get to where they want to go. Absolutely, absolutely. And at some point, I feel against Ali players are going to have to go out of their comfort zone just a little bit. Maybe it's a little bit more, you know, I don't want to say risk, but you kind of do have to play with a little bit more risk. You can't play, uh, you can't play a length-based game with Ali. You have to take the game to him a little bit because like he already anticipates so well, his reach is fantastic. He gets on the ball so early. If you just keep hitting more and more length, you're never really breaking him down. You're never moving him corner to corner. You're never getting him out of position. Whereas if you start getting on the ball earlier, you take time away from him. You kind of do to him what he does to everyone else. If you start moving him into the front and getting on the ball early and really sort of stretching him out, you're not giving him a chance to control that tee and throw you corner to corner. I think people have to start doing that a bit more, which obviously is easier said than done. And you have to, like, if, if you don't have the confidence with your attacking game, then it becomes, it feels risky. But I think players have to sort of take the game to him with high quality, but high percentage as well. Interesting. Well, uh, yeah, well, we've got a, a, a bit more squash over the next few months. We've got Windy City coming up, I believe, uh, this week. Yep. Uh, coming up so that's going to be exciting so uh what do you think uh when are we going to do this again is this a couple of weeks from now we can uh, put together another one of these maybe after windy city a few weeks after that yeah yeah yeah. i'd be i'd be up for that all right let's do this once a month at least uh uh, mate and um yeah i really enjoyed today That, that was fantastic likewise likewise i hope everyone got some nuggets out of there from uh 
maybe some stuff to help their own game and then obviously some understanding of the top top players as well yeah we'll have to get uh yeah also uh maybe see what the, the guys at squash stories uh, would be up to maybe the the four of us can can get together uh, i'll let you you three uh talk some some technical stuff and uh, gary yeah and throw throw in some training uh you know, he's always good with uh, sort of strength and conditioning and he's trying to sell. Last time he was on, he was trying to get me to start t- taking a Korea. What's it? Creatine? Creatine. Yeah. I, I had a bad experience with that um, a few years ago. So uh, is that right? <laughs> I think I took the wrong dosage or something and I, I was cramping up. But uh, oh, man. Yeah, I think there's a there's a loading phase to it. So you don't want to start with the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the full dose. You have to, you have to start with smaller doses. Just make sure your system yeah, uh, reacts I just, to it. I, well. I, did, I think I had a big shake or something. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, right. There, uh, there are positive side effects to it from research. So I can see why he would be recommending it. Mm, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, mate, uh, anything we missed uh, out there? No, I think I think that was great. The the one guy actually we didn't talk as much about, which uh, who I was very impressed with was Mazen Hisham. Yes, we talked yes. about him a bit, but you know when you think about him, just even getting to the finals recently in Houston, he he's always had the skills, mm. but I felt like he lacked a little bit of the fitness and the discipline. Yeah, absolutely. Again, Especially the, the mental level. side of it. I mean, you you could exactly see, you'd like throw a game away, like just eleven balls into the tin. <clears throat> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And now you know you see him coming out, and he's he's developed a lot more quality with his fundamentals, mm. and he's found that balance between the attacking with fundamentals. Yeah. And his fitness has improved, so he can withstand those longer grinding rallies without having to shoot you know, after two or three of them, which he was doing in the past. Now he can back up tough rally after tough rally, which, yeah. um, I mean, when he, he beat Muhammad, right. And yeah, yeah. well, he had two, as well. uh, two big, big matches there. Uh, obviously the five game match yep. against Vessel, but yeah. had he uh, been fresh against Ali, it would have been perhaps interesting. Yeah. Cause I think yeah, he, exactly. he's, the, he's the guy who, if he can get it all together with the game yes. that he has, uh, yes, and he's a, he's able to put. But he's sort of like Asher that way. I, I mean, Rami just put a ball away from anywhere almost, and Mezen's uh, like that. But he, you know, he hits more tin than Rami. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So he he'll be another he'll be another good guy to watch moving forward for sure. Yeah, yeah. I wish I wish him the best because uh, you know he he's a guy I think we all love watching play. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Uh, thanks right, so much, and uh, yeah, it was great having you. Uh, it was it was a great first episode, I think, and um, let's do it again next month. Done, my friend. I'm looking forward to it. Okay.